Today's Bible reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you accord, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Chris, thank you very much. We're quite echoey. Well, morning, let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, one of the ministers here. Lovely to uh, see you. Uh, if you're wondering, if you've been here for the last few weeks... Uh, if you're a guest, you're very welcome, of course. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you may think that we had that reading last week. I don't want to repeat. Uh, it's not BBC 4 or something like that. Uh, it's just the last two verses, actually, we're going to concentrate on today. Better we honed in. Are we happy now? Okay, great. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, what beautiful truths you give us in your word and that we've just sung, that you are a shepherd who guides and restores our soul. And we pray you will be doing just that. Father, would we, if we're your children here this morning, would we hear your voice clearly as a shepherd who loves us? Would your voice call us back from wandering into danger? Would it restore us? Would it bind us up? Would it bring us to health? Father, wherever we're at this morning, would we hear your voice as a shepherd who loves us, we pray. Amen. So a while ago, actually, I read this book, uh, How to Be Good, which seemed like a good title to uh, to read. It's a novel by Nick Hornby. Uh, it's a, probably fairly old now, a few years old. But it tells the story primarily of Katie Carr. Uh, she's a doctor and she is a good person. Objectively, she's quite a good person. In her own mind, she is a, a liberal do-gooder, and that's how she slightly describes herself. So Katie Carr is the main character. Her husband, David, he's a pain. He's actually quite unpleasant. He's rude, he's negative, he's cynical, he grinds her down over a period of time, so much so she could justify having an affair. But um, what really annoys Katie about her husband is when he turns a corner and decides he's going to be good. Really good. It's ultra-liberal good. 
And so he decides he's going to save, he's going to relieve third world debt on his own. Is his ambition. Doesn't quite manage that. But he is fairly a little radical in his goodness for her. So all the children's toys, he sells them because they've got too many. And uh, all these homeless people on the streets, it's no good just giving a little bit of money away. He invites some to come and stay and live in their house. And uh, at that point, uh, Katie just finds her husband's goodness just a little annoying, uh, to be honest. And the children... Well, they're a bit annoyed. Their Xboxes have been given away and they have to share a room with a smelly homeless man. They're a little less impressed with their father's goodness too. And in truth, as the novel goes on, he's doing these things and yet in his character, he's still angry, bitter and cynical and everyone knows it. And so all in all, it's a fairly miserable read. But it's written by, it's a comedy. So it's a sort of misery comedy thing. If you like that, I'd go for it. It's very impressive. The Times describes it as hilarious, sophisticated and compulsive. You can make up your own mind. It is quite a good novel. But how do you be good? If you decided tomorrow I'm going to stop being an unpleasant person and become a good person, or I'm going to radically change my life, how do you do that? How do you be good? How optimistic are you about that in your own life? Do you expect transformation or change? Or do you just perceive yourself as an old dog now? You can't learn new tricks. I had someone say to me fairly recently, it's, it's too late really for me to make radical changes in my life. My character is set. They were 27. Now that's just a little bit. I mean, goodness me, I didn't know whether to laugh or despair with the man. That's a little disappointing, isn't it? If you're age 27, you think your life is set. But how optimistic are you about change? Or for others, your workplace, do you despair of that colleague? I think they're a write-off. Or do you think, well, with a little bit of help and assistance, we could probably get them up to the reasonable standard? How optimistic of change are you? Or your friends? Or family members? What should we expect in that? Well, if you've been with us for one, in, in this uh, letter of 1 Peter, it's very clear change is normal in the Christian life, expected, required of a believer. It's entirely normal. We said uh, uh, repeatedly really over the last few weeks, uh, the strategy that um, uh, Peter outlines for Christians living in the world is uh, in chapter 2, verse 12. It's verses 11 and 12. Uh, the sort of key strategy, how if you're a Christian, you should live in this world. And if you're not, you may be interested by this. It's not that remarkable, but let me read it to you again, chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from simple desires which war against your soul, and then live such good lives among the pagans that they, they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. So verse 11, you need to recognize there's a change in your identity when you become a Christian. This repeated metaphor of aliens and strangers. There's a sense in which the Christian is a little bit like E.T. This world is not home. We want to go home. But while we're here, we'll have a lot of fun and do good. Green and scaly, that's optional to you. You can take it or leave it. But there's a sense in which for the Christian, this world is not our home. We're going home. But while we're here, do good. That's the sort of repeated phrase. It's not complicated in one sense, but just look it down with me. It's the main strategy. So chapter 2, verse 12, that people may see your good deeds. 
that a few weeks ago we looked at how you relate to the state. So chapter 2, verse 15. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of uh, uh, foolish men. Or when it comes to uh, relating to your employer, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good. So there is a sense in which Christians are, says Peter, to be do-gooders. That's the strategy for life in this world. But that's hard. It's hard when the state is being unreasonable. Or it's hard when your employer is being unreasonable. That chapter 2, verse 20, we thought quite hard about that last week. Suffering when you do good. And God likes that. It's hard. How do you do, how do you do that? How do you be good when it's hard, when there are trials upon you? How do you be good when it, it causes you to be persecuted? Well, one reason we looked at last week was in verses 23, sorry, verse 22 and 3, but 23 in particular, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's a model for us. You can survive and endure persecution or, or wrongdoing or uh, someone failing to recognize the work you've done if you know that God sees and will reward you. So there's an example. Trust God as a father who judges justly like Jesus did. That's one way in which you can do good. The example of Jesus. But the other way, and that's what I just want to spend time on today, is 24 and 25, which essentially is you need to be transformed by his death. You need to be transformed by his death. So verses 24 and 25, they're not just random verses. It's not just that Peter thinks, oh, tell you what, I'm talking about Jesus. You know, when I'm talking about Jesus, I love to talk about the cross, because that's the most important thing about Jesus. He's not just chucking it in because he can't resist talking about what happens. But this whole section is, you need to live differently. How can you do this? Well, look at the example of Jesus Christ and, verse 24 and 25, know that he has died to change you. Let me read it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Now that is in our lives today. Die to sin, live for righteousness. Jesus Christ died. Died to save us for eternity. But that's not Peter's point primarily here. His point is that he died to transform you so you can live differently in this world now. Here is the key to doing good. Let's work through it. We're going to work through it then uh, just really as the text does. So Jesus bore our sins and there are three clauses that hang off that grammatically. So that we die to sin, so that we live for righteousness, so that we could be healed. Okay, let's run, run through them. Firstly, Jesus bore our sins. That's the main thing we're told, the main uh, indicative here. Uh, Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Odd phrase. Uh, In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, uh, if you were a criminal, you would be hung on a tree. If you've committed some grievous crime that brings you under the curse of God, particularly there highlighted is is a murder and rape, If you commit some sort of grievous crime, you're under the curse of God, 
and there you'll be, you'll be hanged on a tree. And Peter is drawing that background into describing what happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was bearing the curse of God in himself. So his point is, when Jesus died, he bore our sins. He took God's curse for us. Now that hopefully, if you've been a Christian for a while, is a familiar truth. But it isn't just a truth for the future. Peter is saying that is a truth very much for you today. It affects your life today. Some may have heard this before. Uh, the preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, told the story of a man who was conscripted to fight for the British army in the Napoleonic War. And he didn't want to go. He had a family. Uh, and so a friend of his said, no problem. I will take your place. You can go back to your family. I will be the conscript in your place. And I'll go off to France and uh, fight for you. Very kind. So this soldier number two, the friend, goes off to France and fights in the war for a couple of years and tragically is killed. A few months later, soldier number one receives another letter ordering him to be conscripted. He refuses. So he's called before a court. On what grounds do you um, refuse to go and fight uh, for the king over in France? Because I've done it once and I died over there. What are you talking about, man? You obviously didn't. No, no. I was conscripted to fight. Another took my place. He fought. He died. My work is done. And apparently the judge said, okay, fair enough. Now, whether that's a true story, I don't know. Theologically, it's a very good story. He's saying, you cannot die twice. And if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has died for your sin. He's taken the curse of God for you on the cross. So that when you stand before the Lord and he says, well, you deserve, you deserve my curse for the way you've lived we can rightly plead in Jesus' name, I've done that. My representative has been conscripted into death for me. An entirely right and proper way of arguing. But you see, so you see his point here. His point is in verse 24, Jesus has borne it. Past tense. Jesus has borne away the penalty for your crimes against God and against others. And so... Well, there are three purposes that hang off it. It's not the only reasons that Jesus died, or many, many in the Bible, but here are the three that Peter wants to highlight. So that, first then, so that we die to sins. Verse uh, 24. Peter says here, stop sinning and live for righteousness. So don't, don't make a mistake here. It's not that Jesus dies and all your sins are wiped clean and you can live as you want. Peter's not saying that. He's saying when you've died and Jesus, when you, Jesus has died for you, he's wiped your sins away. Now, now there's a certain pattern of living you need to adhere to. Now you need to live for righteousness. Now I don't know how you hear that. You possibly could hear that as, 
okay, well, Jesus has died for the things I've done wrong in the past, but now he lays upon me another burden or obligation of righteousness. But if you hear it that way, you have too small a view of the cross. Because essentially then, you're just thinking of what Jesus did as a get-out-of-hell card, for want of a better term. I can live my life as I want, it doesn't matter, because when I get to heaven, I'll whip out my card and say, look, Jesus died for me, is that all right? Uh, I don't need to go to jail, and I now give you the card, and off I go. Well, that is, in part that's true, but that's too small a view of the cross, because Jesus didn't just die to save you for eternity, he died to transform you here and now. And so the fact that God wants us to live for righteousness, that's not a burden, that's amazing. We can do that now. We can live differently now, says Peter. Let's unpack it a bit more. What do you think he means that we might die to sins? In this context, I think what he means by that is we, we now see sin for what it is. We die to the lie of sin. We're no longer taken in by sin's deceit. When you become a Christian, you see through the false promises that sin makes. You've, you've died to that. Uh, a little example. In the, um, uh, the first one that C.S. Lewis wrote of his Narnia novels, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, probably the most familiar, Edmund. Edmund is the silly boy, the silly boy of the Pevensies. He comes through the wardrobe later and he meets the Snow Queen. And she says to him, Edmund, if you eat the Turkish delight, go eat Turkish delight, it's wonderful. If you bring your brothers, your brother and sisters to me, I will make you prince over Narnia. And he believes the lie. And so he tries to do that. He tries, he doesn't quite manage, and he goes to see the witch and says, look, I can tell you where they are. You can go and capture them all at the beaver's house. Uh, if you have no concept of this world, it sounds odd, I know. But um, he says, it, it, uh, but so he, t- he says this to the queen and she says thank you for that information and throws him into prison and as he sat in a jail gnawing on a very dry piece of bread it starts to dawn on him she has lied to me Lewis's point sin lies to you it promises you wonderful things it delivers nothing course, as the, as the story goes on. Because of this, Edmund's going to die. Aslan, the Jesus figure, dies for him, saves him. Edmund says, okay, now I see truth. I don't want to, I don't want to chase the lies that the Queen has told me. I, I see where that ends up. That ends up in prison, eating dry bread. I follow the truth. I'm following this man, lion. Uh, I'm following this one, Aslan, because he is good. He saves me. I can be useful, and when he makes promises, they're true and noble. And in a similar sort of way, the Christian realizes, I've been living for lies. I thought, whatever it was, I thought only if I earned enough money would I be valuable. I thought only if I had sex with enough people would I be a significant person. I thought only if I achieved a certain level in my career so my parents were content that I was sensitive that I was a real person. And the Christian wakes up one day and says, well, I don't need to live for those lies. Sin promises things, or it doesn't deliver. 
I'm going to live differently now. I know that God values me. And so the love of the Father drives away the lies of sin. And sometimes you see that in very dramatic ways, or mildly dramatic ways. So you can think of a guy here at church, addicted to gambling, money after money going into his habit of gambling, became a Christian and just stopped. He said, because I used to get such a kick out of the thrill. But I realized I was just chasing the wind. And actually, knowing God is far more satisfying. I don't need that anymore. He just saw through the lie. Or I can think of a man who was a petty thief. A little bit of burglary, a little bit of selling stuff off the back of a lorry. He did it because he, he was a poorly educated man and that was the way he fed his family. He became a Christian and stopped. Because he said, now I see, I don't need to break the law to provide for my family. I will trust God to do so. Oh, for a while it means we have less money in our family. But I trust God that honouring him, he'll provide. He is a better master than the money I got from petty thievery. And so he worked really hard and got himself educated and got himself a, a reasonable job and now provides for his family. Because no longer believing in the lies, but believing in truth. Died to sin. Well, let me give a, a really prosaic, a mild in one sense example, uh, which may ring more home to you if you're not a petty thief or gambler. Just a, a, one of my, let me admit it, one of my temptations certainly in life is at home to be lazy. Life is busy. And so essentially when I get home, one of my greatest desires at home is to sit in a chair. There's a certain chair, it's my chair, please don't sit in it. To sit in my chair and read a newspaper or a novel. And that is, to my mind, bliss. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, in one sense. But I say to myself, or sometimes when I'm, you know, I can see that this is causing a little bit of friction within the household, I can say to myself, okay, newspaper and sitting in a chair. Why am I, why am I so excited by this? Because I think this will provide for me something very wonderful. It's not that wonderful. So, this is a bit ridiculous, and you may not need to do this, but sometimes I do find myself running through a list of questions in my head. Newspaper. When did you ever bear away my sins? Newspaper. When did you take God's curse for me? Newspaper. When did you heal my spiritual sickness? Newspaper. When did you give me the power to change? Newspaper. At what point in this life are you expecting to take me to heaven with God? The newspaper's answers are pretty limited. And I wonder, I mean, of course that's ridiculous. But all I'm, all I'm saying to myself is, I don't, I don't believe the lie that this will satisfy me forever, which is kind of what I think at that very moment in time. I've been liberated from that. I can serve God because he's very wonderful. I can live for him now. I can live differently now. And so I offer, you know, anything you want me to do. No, you sit there and read the paper. Fabulous. Fabulous. All right, just, no, that's fine. Jesus died, he bore our sins so that we might die to sin. Not believe the lies that sin tells us. The other half of that, he, died, he bore our sins so that we might live for righteousness. Jesus died so that we could live differently here and now. We could be changed here and now. And once we've died to the lies of sin, we can live for righteousness. 
Let me take one more example and, and work it through. Uh, I was reading a book recently. It's quite an interesting book. Uh, the Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce the uh, author's name. Dan uh, Ariely, I think, or something like Ariely. He's a um, he's a, a lecturer at Duke University in the States. It's the culmination of ten years' research on lying, and he's done this same experiment over and over and over again with hundreds of thousands of people over ten years. And the experiment is this: he gets a, a group in a room, say about twenty at a time, and uh, he gives them a number of Sudoku-type problems, and you've got five minutes to solve them. And for every problem that you solve, you get 50 cents. Big, you know, woo uh, So he's not a big spender. Uh, but he says, on average, it's quite complicated. And uh, people fill in these sheets, and they hand them in. And when they're marked, on average, they get four. Correct. That's what the average is in five minutes. Then they have another go. Precisely the same exercise, but when it, instead of handing them in, he says, now mark them the cell yourself, and when you finish marking them, just put them in the shredder. The average mark goes from four to six. And there aren't an enormous number of outliers. The spread is very narrow. This is very interesting. Because instinctive to the vast majority of humanity is, we lie a little bit. We lie a little bit. So we don't want to be tell ridiculous lies, but if no one's assessing us, we lie, because it's to our advantage, and we know that. Now, he, he changes things a little bit more. Uh, sometimes he changes the prize money from instead of 50 cents per, per correct answer to $5 per correct answer. So now this is, you know, significant almost. But the average mark stays the same. When people mark their own, they still get six on average. He raises it to $10 or $20, the average mark goes down. So that's interesting. The default setting of humans is to lie a little bit for their advantage, but not too much, because they want to look at themselves in a mirror and say, I'm a good person. I'm not a liar and a cheat. Interesting. The, uh, the third case, I mean, here's a whole number of case studies. One more. The, um, it says, occasionally, I'll have one man in the room stand up after about four minutes and say, hey, I've done them all. I've got all 20. And uh, then he sort of marks himself and puts them in the shredder. No one can verify that. He says, at that point, the average mark goes from 6 to 10. Because everyone thinks, well, if he's cheating, I'm cheating too. I don't want to miss out. But that's interesting. Why do, so it's, just, it's just one example, lying. Why do humans lie? One, we do so if it's to our own advantage and we can get away with it. Two, we like to think we're good people so we don't do too much. Three, but we don't want someone else getting away with more than we do. Those of this peer pressure has an influence upon us. How do you change your pattern in that particular example? Why would you be honest? No one will know. You could put in 20, you get, you know, if he's giving the, uh, the $10 option, you've done quite well, $200, that's significant. What, what will make you honest in that scenario? Well, if you know that sin lies and Jesus is wonderful. Do you think to yourself, okay, I could if I wanted to lie and get $200 in this particular example, but do I need that money? No. $200 will not change my life. It won't revolutionize who I am. Now let's compare $200 to Jesus Christ. Actually, he can. Actually, it's pretty remarkable what he can do to my life. I'm going to follow him and not the money. 
I'll tell the truth. See, there, there, is a, there is a significant power in your life which can persuade you to do truth. Peer pressure, it'll have some impact, but not much. Your own self-constraint, I'm a good person, so I don't want to do too much lying. That'll limit how much you lie, but it won't stop you lying. Jesus Christ, he's very wonderful. I can trust him to look after me. I won't lie. I don't need to lie. I don't need to pay cash in hand to the world. It's so annoying. All the Everyone around me, they're, they're getting their, whatever it is, they're getting their um, bathrooms redone, and they all pay cash in hand, and it's cheap, and it's very tempting. They all get away with it. Why shouldn't I? Because I don't need that money, nice as it would be. I can pay the VAT. Because Jesus Christ is a better master than saving a little bit of money. Jesus bore our sin so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Why else do we tell lies? I met a mother yesterday. Uh, I was talking to her about uh, uh, adolescence and how much time they look at the internet. And uh, she said, oh, my children never look at the internet unsupervised. And I said, I, I don't want to judge. It's a slightly odd thing for me to ask, but actually, are you telling me the truth when you say that? <laughs> no, of course they do. It's impossible to stop them these days. Oh. Again, I'm just interested. Why did you say that? Well, that's what all my friends, we all say that to one another. Do you think they're all lying? Oh yeah, they're all lying. Why, do you, why are you telling that lie? Well, because that makes us feel better. We don't want to be left out. We don't want to be the bad mother. And we want to feel good about ourselves. Okay. It's quite interesting. Thank you for your honesty. The Christian says, look, I could fit in. I could tell the same lie as everyone else. It's sort of this game we're playing. We all make ourselves feel a little bit better by pretending our children are not watching porn on the internet when they're 13. We, we can play that game. But um, uh, the Christian says, I don't need to. Jesus Christ is a kinder master. He's a wonderful saviour. And I care about his verdict upon my life more than my suburban mummy friends. Do you see? Jesus Christ bore our sins so that we die to sin and live for righteousness. So you can be different when you look to him and acknowledge what he's done. Now, very briefly, it isn't just looking to him as well. The, the third little clause that's there. Uh, Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin, so that we might live to righteousness. Third little thing, so that we could be healed. Verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. Past tense with ongoing implications. You have been healed. Because when you become a Christian, there is a transformation taking place within you there is a healing which has taken place within you, a transformation internally that has ongoing implications. The Bible uses other metaphors for it. Born again, a new heart. But it's a radical thing that takes place that enables you to live differently. The most striking thing about this book, How to Be Good, when you get about halfway through it, uh, Katie's getting very exasperated indeed with her life. And uh, she's, I used to think myself I was a good person. I run through the Ten Commandments, not that I believe in any of them, but I kind of wonder these days. And she concludes this. When I look at my sins 
And look, to be honest, if I think they're sins, they are sins, regardless of whether there's a God or not. But when I look at my sins, I see the appeal of born-again Christianity. I suspect that it's not the faith, the, the stuff that surrounds it, the going to church that's so alluring. It's the rebirth. Who wouldn't wish to have a power to start all over again? Now, I didn't know anything about Nick Hornby. He's no Christian. He's observed something. That's quite an interesting observation. There's no, there's no Christians in the novel as such. But he says, you know, he'd presumably met some Christians and said, look, you know, I don't believe what they think, but you know what? That, you can start over again. That's appealing. You can have a power in your life which changes you. Who, who wouldn't want that? And Peter's saying, that's precisely what you've got. By his wounds, you've been healed. That's not physical healing. We may or may not recover from physical illness in this life. Uh, Peter's talking about behavior here. But let me give a physical example to make the point. A man has very poor lungs. He has emphysema. And uh, uh, this is the limit of my medical knowledge, so bear with it. But he has emphysema and his lungs are shutting down. He's in and out of hospital. He desperately needs a lung transplant. Eventually, his life is very limited. He can't walk a great deal of distance. He doesn't really like driving. and His life is very limited, in and out of hospital. Eventually, the lung comes up. He has a transplant. He's been healed. Another doctor say, look, for two or three weeks, you need to be very careful. You can go back to work in two months, but just no manual lifting. But he is petrified. And six months later, he still refuses to walk anywhere apart from within his house. Can't bear to get in a car. Won't lift a thing. Until eventually his wife drives him to the doctor and the doctor says, why are you, why are you living this way? You have been healed. Now live that way. Live like you've been healed. You need to walk so your body gets stronger. You need to puff yourself out a little bit so gradually your lung capacity returns to what it should be at your age. Live. And there's a sense in which some Christians can be like that man. Jesus, you become a Christian and Jesus gives you new life. You've been healed. Born again, to use another metaphor. And yet... You still live for sin. You don't live for righteousness. And Peter here is saying, get out there. You can live differently. Stop being so pessimistic about the change in your life. You can, you can do this. You can be different now. Jesus has died to bear your sins and you can die to sin. Don't believe it's lies. You can live for righteousness. You've been healed. Now live out your healing. That's really what he's encouraging us to do here. Live. Live differently. Now Jesus has done this for you. Jesus bore our sins to save us from hell for heaven for eternity. That is entirely true and proper and right biblically. But Peter here is saying as we finish, Jesus bore our sins so we can be good. So that we might die to sin. So that we might live to righteousness. Because we've been healed. We just need to live that out. Remembering the sort of God that we've got So as we finish, just that wonderful verse 25. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a very familiar metaphor biblically. 
Sheep are in danger. Sheep wander, and therefore they might fall off a cliff. Sheep get lost, and therefore may die of cold at night because they're exposed. Sheep have gone away, and they may have a wolf come and get the lone sheep on their own. Sheep are in danger, and Jesus Christ is has brought us back. So now we know God as a shepherd of our souls. A shepherd that doesn't save us and then lay burdens upon us. A shepherd who saves us and then says, I've changed you. Come on. Come on, Flossie. Come on, Christchurch. You can live differently now. Come on, I will guide you. I'll be with you. I won't leave you. Come on. He is a shepherd. He, Jesus died so we would know God as a shepherd. A shepherd of our souls. It's a lovely picture. So we can hear his voice in warning. Be encouraged to live for him. Be protected from cliffs, wolves, cold of this life. So that we can be changed. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree. And we know he's that sort of God. And when you know the Father is that sort of shepherd, you'll change. If you believe those things as true, you'll change, says Peter. Live out the healing that has been given to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that in the work of Jesus Christ, we have been brought back to know you, our Father, as a shepherd, whose goodness restores our soul, who guides us in ways of righteousness, who comforts us, who feasts us. And we pray that in knowing you as such, and knowing the work you've done to change us, we would die to sin, not believing its lies. We would live for righteousness, bringing great honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.